and welcome to the Silver Screen Queens podcast. Every week we watch a movie and sit down here to talk about it. I'm Mel. I'm Katie. And we're your hosts. This week we watched Bad Times at the El Royale, directed by Drew Goddard and released in 2018. The plot of Bad Times at the El Royale goes something like this. Seven strangers, each with a secret to bury, meet at the El Royale, a rundown hotel with a dark past. Let's do a little non-spoilery section at the beginning to let people know whether or not they should see Bad Times at the El Royale. Yes. Yes, you should they see. should. So this is Drew Goddard who made Cabin in the Woods, best known for Buffy, um, but also has written a few things that are in the trailer for this, but I can't remember right now. He also like made Cloverfield. Cloverfield. Which I hate, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, but you hate that because you hate Tricky Cam. Yes, I I, I hate Cloverfield because I couldn't watch it um, and I got sick. Oh, and The Martian. Which is he's also very well known for the Martian, the Martian, which he, he wrote. wrote the Martian, which is great. Um, so he he's very well known, but this is very Drew Goddardy sort of a project. You he know. also works on Daredevil. No wonder I love Drew Goddard. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I knew that. Did you not know that? I've forgotten. I think I knew it at one point. Yeah. Anyway, if so, if you, you probably know if you're into him, if it's he, he's someone you haven't heard of, he's very. This is sort of, I don't know. It's a, a thriller at a mysterious motel that is gimmicky uh in that it the hotel i mean is gimmicky in that it sits across two different states and you've got this random group of strangers who are thrown together in the hotel i don't want to tell you too much about how the story is told but it's kind of a bit thrillery a bit of a mystery that sort of reveals itself over the course of the film yeah it feels a bit like a a cross between like cabin in the woods Mm. and murder on the orient express yeah, that's kind actually, of something like that. Yeah, you know where you've got a lot of characters and shadiness, and you're trying to figure out who did something and who didn't do things, what and, all their secrets are. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's kind of somewhere in that area. A bit Hitchcocky um, as well. I will spoil this for people though. There's nothing supernatural in this movie, so don't go into it expecting supernatural things in this movie because I did, and it was very distracting. Yeah, it's more of a traditional horror slash thriller. It's not. I wouldn't say it's traditional. In a lot of ways, it doesn't – like, it's it's got a certain kind of aesthetic that's quite old-fashioned, but I think its storytelling is quite unusual. Yes, but I, I kind of want to warn people that it is a bit – it's scary. Is it what is I'm scary. Saying. Yes, it is um, scary. So it's got but a it's, lot of the tropes of a horror film in it. Yes, it that's does. what I want to warn people about. But, yeah, I think just because, like, I'm bringing my Drew Goddard baggage to this, I was expecting – something supernatural for the whole film and it never came Mm. and that just distracted me from enjoying it I think and I don't want other people to have that distraction from their enjoyment of the film yeah I don't think it was and it was my own fault because I just brought that with my own Drew Mm. Goddard baggage but I think also even the trailers and stuff made it seem like maybe there was something supernatural going on Mm. the way it's cut and everything so I just think it, you will enjoy the movie better if you're not expecting that. Yes, yes. If you're like, you know, there's plenty going on without having to add that anyway. And having that expectation was just made it not as much fun because I was constantly waiting for something that was never going to happen. Yeah, I did very much enjoy this film. Oh, I loved it. Um, and <laughs> but I, I think I would have loved it even more. You see. Yeah, I, I think I wasn't super bothered by that, although... I do feel like there were things that were unresolved mm. uh, that I would have liked to have seen resolved, but I don't want to talk about that uh, in the unspoilery bit. We'll get into that later. But really, yeah, I think people should see this. Yeah, it looks really cool. It's really cool and interesting, and the storytelling's great. Got a great soundtrack and great casting. Oh, yes. Almost down to a person. Like, everybody is so well cast, and it's such a 
interesting group of people to have working with each other and and they all bring something really cool and I really liked that. And I, I particularly liked Cynthia Erivo. She was amazing and she has a really big job to do. I suspect she was the part was written with her in mind. I don't think so based on what I've read afterwards, but I uh, because, can see why. Because she has to carry a lot of singing through mm. this part so Obviously, it needs someone who's a really strong singer and she's um, obviously a strong Broadway background, but she's a really good actress as mm. well. So she does a lot of the heavy lifting and I I found her incredibly impressive in this. Yeah, and she does a lot of acting opposite jo- Jeff Bridges and mm. they have really good chemistry as actors. Mm. Not necessarily sexual, just, you they know. They work well together. They work well together. They bounce off each other well and seem to be enjoying being in the movie, I think. Mm. Um, I already liked Cynthia Erivo, Cynthia Erivo, but she's so great in this. I was so glad she got so much to do and she was so great. And I love her. Mm. Anyway, we should start talking spoilers. Yes. Oh, and Chris Hemsworth as well. Great in this movie. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, can't talk about him too much without spoiling. So just to, yeah, I mean, he's always good, but he's he's always very good when he gets to like let off the leash a little bit. Um, so yeah, so if you haven't seen Bad Times at the El Royale, probably stop listening to us now and then come back when you have, because uh, this is one to go into knowing as little as possible. Yeah. Um. Okay, so where should we start with this movie? Um. um well, I, I really like the storytelling, I have to say. That sort of Rashomon thing where you it gets revealed through the eyes of the different characters mm. as you go along, that was fantastic. Yeah, I was writing about the, like the simultaneous um, storylines, mm. but like you see one point of view on it and then you see the next one and like – the way that they did that, especially with showing us Dakota Johnson um, and her sister in the room and going through that, and then the next one we see is Jeff Bridges and Miles. <laughs> Miles is the character name. The Poor priest man's Tom and the Holland. Kid. Yeah. Poor man's Tom Holland, Bill Pullman's son. Lewis Pullman. Going through the back of the hotel. Mm. Um, oh, no, we don't. Do we see that from Dakota Johnson's point of view or do we see it from. No, we go through. We first see it from John, John Ham, and then Dakota Johnson's. But then, like, yeah. the sense of dread that builds up as because you know that they're going past that window, and you know that there's shots that go through that window when somebody gets hit. Yeah, and they go through past one window and another one and another one, and it keeps building and it keeps building, and then he just holds it for so long because we, um, Miles, the kid, actually watches the scene play out. Mm. And then it comes, Jeff Bridges comes down and goes, get away from the window. And then he gets shot. But like, because we know it's going to happen. Mm. And it's held for such a long time. Mm-hmm. That you're just sitting there going, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? When's it going to yeah. happen? It's such a good technique. Yeah. When, when you see all these things happening from different perspectives and you, and you start to realize who's seen what and what's mm. going on, it's a really good um, way of revealing it to the audience. Yes. Yeah. And, and then um, we go into, I think, Cynthia Revo after that. But like, yeah, showing each person, showing a little bit further mm-hmm. on each, yeah, from each and, person's and, and, perspective, yeah, it's just fantastic. Yeah, like each, yeah, each person, you you see the incident, and then you build on that each yeah. time. It's great. But also, we also get little breaks in the action mm. to go into flashbacks as well. So we mm. get to know more about the characters, but also we're sitting there going, "No, but what's going on in the main story?" And he won't tell us for a little bit while we go into this flashback. Yeah, which was like mean, but also really clever. I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed that. Yes. I mean, and you needed it for some of the characters. Like some, some like John Hamm, it could all sort of happen in camera. Like at the El Royale, his stuff. He doesn't of, have a flashback. No, though. he doesn't. No, that's yeah. what I'm saying. His reveals 
all sort of at the El Royale, yeah. all of his story. Whereas like Dakota Johnson, it makes a lot, it needs the flashback to kind of explain the, the sister thing. Yeah, it does. And um, I think Cynthia Rivos is really good for building character. Mm. And also you need um, Father Flynn's, you need Jeff Bridges' flashback mm. or else we don't know. Well, yeah, because it opens with um, with Nick Offerman, um, yes. which is part, it you know, turns out to be part of his flashback. Yeah. That also, by the way, I wrote that the opening scene is basically a masterclass in tension building and stuff mm. because we watch him come in. It's all one take for ages and you yeah. see how scared he is. Mm-hmm. And then he's waiting for something, doesn't happen, and then he just starts digging the room up. Yep. And we're like, what the hell is going on? And then he opens the door for somebody and then somebody just shoots him. Mm. We still don't know who that was. No, I know. I, I assumed it was the third guy who did the yeah, robbery. Yeah, me but too. We never find out. We n- and we never find out. And later on, uh, Chris Hemsworth asks, what about the other person from the robbery? And, and Jeff Bridges goes, oh, they're all dead. But, like, that was never actually established. No. Like, I assumed the third guy from the robbery shot. Um, Nick Offerman and ran off. Yeah, himself. So, but that didn't make. Yeah, that was something that was not resolved that annoyed me a bit. Yeah, there's quite a few of those things where I don't know. Maybe they, he had to cut it down for time. Mm. But that was confusing. But yeah, yeah I, I loved the first scene anyway because at that point we didn't know we were never going to find out who shot him, and it's so like I was going to say it's not that long of a movie. It is two hours twenty one minutes. It did not feel like two hours and 21 minutes. I knew it was long because of when I got home, or the time it was yeah. when I got home. Yeah, it was longer than you realise, but it didn't feel long watching it. I, I could have happily watched another, like, 20 minutes of that movie. I know, me too. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I was I actually figured out it was quite long afterwards, but I didn't feel it while I was watching it. Not even a tiny bit. And there was a there was even a time when I had to pee, and I was like, no, I don't I don't need to go that badly, and I just ignored it till it went away because I Held didn't yeah. want to leave. I also stopped taking notes for ages and everything because I was just so invested mm. in the movie and I didn't want to miss anything. Yeah. And the thing is I was still I think also because of it's such a build up of you don't know what's going on with everybody mm. that you don't want to look away in case you miss something. Right. Um and they build everything out so much and and then also it it goes in places that you do expect sometimes but then it'll take a complete left turn. Like when they're doing the um, – when Billy Lee comes in and he does the game the first time, you absolutely do not expect Dakota Johnson to die. Like storytelling-wise, you're like, oh, she has to keep going, right? Like she's his main kind of rival. Mm. She's going to be the final girl. Nope, she's gone. <laughs> and you're like, what? Surely the, the other kid was supposed to die then. Well, I actually thought she was going to die because there was no one else who was properly – expendable well oh, i feel like miles is much more expendable he than her is, at that but point we like him so much we love cynthia Revo. we like jeff bridges and the awful little sister has to survive for chris hemsworth to stay but yeah but also he's not going to shoot her he, yeah she's he's not, not part gonna, of the game yeah. yeah so i was not surprised at all i was like of course it had to be her like it kind of i thought it i thought he was definitely going to kill the other kid yeah no because his as far as we knew his purpose in the story was done yeah. We knew what he had done. We knew his job, you know. Well, I mean, he hadn't um, talked about his flat, his wartime service or anything yet. We actually no, hadn't we learned a lot about know, him yet. But we didn't – at the time, we didn't know that he was in the war, right? Yeah, yeah. And he had already talked about all the terrible things he'd done by watching all of those people and reporting them to his, like, supervisors. And also, at that point in the movie – storytelling wise he hadn't been absolved by the priest mm. so to see him die when he hadn't been absolved would have been really like wrenching for him yeah it would have been a really 
It, it was setting him up to die. Yeah, but also to allow him to be absolved before he died. Yes, but it Which is doesn't nice and satisfying. doesn't necessarily seem like that at the time. I mean, the movie is definitely yeah, not going I, for nice and satisfying at that point. Yeah, I w- wasn't super shocked. I was shocked that how quickly it happened, but it also was kind of like, well, of all of them, she's the one who's going to – they're not going to kill Cynthia Erivo because she's basically no, the she's heart. No, she's not playing. It's the, only between the two. Between those two, yeah. But, I mean, of the other – of all four at the table, like, it just seemed like she was the one who was going to die to me just because the others had were like too, we were too attached to the others if they were going to die they had to have proper deaths okay because i th- thought we'd built up this whole rivalry between her and billy lee yeah i mean like i thought they were building up to a showdown between those two we we had but yeah it was a bit, it was interesting yeah clearly we had different takes on that moment yeah we did i i really liked though chris hemsworth as a cult leader that's yes. such a great idea weaponized masculinity mm. is so it takes everything about chris hemsworth the abs the height the like scruffiness the love of the beach mm. and weaponizes it it's really well done yeah the way that he is introduced to the movie and everything is really interesting and mm. it seems like he's preying on boots mm-hmm. um i can't remember i don't remember her name either oh uh, rosie right I'm just going to call her Boots, I think. Mm-hmm. It's the first name that we, she gets called, and it seems to suit her better, considering how violent she is. Mm. Um, but, the um, yeah, that introduction is so, like, predatory as well, and mm. you don't see his face and all that stuff. It's really clever. Mm. And he's such a, like, looming figure. Yes. That height works mm. for him as – like he, he, you really see him like loom over people, and that's very like that's that kind of, it's a very masculine thing as well. Like the way it feels around really tall men, yeah. Um, that's quite scary. Yes, I just noticed that the height difference, because, know, and because he's it so made ma- him looming. Yeah, and with boots because she's so small, and I think that actress might actually be a teenager. She's so tiny. Yeah. Uh, in comparison to him, and but it, but it also makes him that way with all the the women in his cult. Yeah, as well. Um. Well, yeah, there are also guys in his cult. I think we yeah. really only see his interactions with Emily and Rose, mm. not really with anyone else. Like, I, and you know, he gets the two girls to fight, but it's not like he's gonna. It's not like he's he's likely to fight, get Boots to fight. You know, a big tall guy mm. that would not suit his purpose particularly not, well. I don't think no, no, it doesn't make any sense. So I don't know how much it was. Mm. But yeah, the um. The most interesting thing about him, I think, and especially his performance, like he's so swaggery and the, mm. you know, the dance that he does and everything, it's very distracting. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's where I, in my brain I was like weaponized abs. Yeah. I, wa- I was like, huh. And then it went to his back and I'm like, I should think about the implications of this, not just be distracted yeah. by how sexy that, it that, is that he's doing But that's that. the thing, like he's allergic to shirts, right, in yeah. this movie. And that's part of the whole cult leader thing. He's, and that's why he's able to get so many women under his sway. Yes. And probably like gay men as well, but it, like they focus on the women. Yes. And then um, when he comes across one who he can't charm and who doesn't mm. fall for it with Cynthia Revo and her fantastic speech about, you know, men who talk enough to pre- think they believe in something but really just want to f- who they want to f- and it makes him so angry and why dakota johnson makes him so angry as well because but, they won't neither of them will fall for his shtick yes and also um the but he still can intimidate her i suppose and he doesn't intimidate yeah, well because he has leverage over dakota johnson yeah whereas he doesn't over cynthia Revo. and then the way he kind of deflates and looks small mm. and like looks almost like a different person 
when she does that is mm. so good and it's so clever and it's like that moment of kind of showing how really fragile and small he is yeah. in spite of all this swaggering, terrifying mm. violence that he's got going on. Yeah. It's really, really good and it's really good acting from the two of them. Like yeah. the, it's a really, really good scene. Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot and it shows that Chris Hemsworth actually can act. We know that. We've we talked know that. about that in many, many movies. I know. But it, I'm so saying this the mm. way he shows it in this movie because all the rest of the movie he's basically just doing one thing mm. except for that moment. And then he tries to kind of lord it over her two seconds later by trying to make her sing and then going, oh, you're not that good, mm. which of course is apparently Jeff Bridges' like trigger to go off and he just goes nuts at him. Yeah, well, because she, she launches into this brilliant acapella version of um, Unchained Melody. My God, mm. the soundtrack mm. of this movie is insane. Like we could just mine this soundtrack for radio content for the next like several months on our radio show. We, we pick a song from a soundtrack every few weeks and play it. It's just so good. Mm. All the Motown um, stuff particularly, but then like that sort of weaponized use of deep purple. Yeah. That was really good too. The, the way that it was used in the movie. There wasn't also a moment where Darlene sings a love song to the mirror while Dakota Johnson is behind it. Yeah. And I was like, well, this is very romantic. You, yeah, you leaned over to me and was like, these two are going to run off together, right? Yes. I didn't really mean that, obviously. No, and I hadn't picked up on any chemistry between them, but the way that they, scene They had framed. no scenes together yeah. earlier. Was, oh, no, they did, but like they didn't talk to each other in the earlier no, scene they had um, together. The way that scene is framed, though, is very cool. Yeah. I mean, that whole bit where the, two, the two-way the mirror thing, which is straight out of Cabin in the Woods, mm-hmm. is um, it's a really good conceit, I think. Yeah. Like, because it just makes the whole thing very scary, but it also – it makes you reframe what you know about the Nick Offerman scene that opened the whole thing. Yes. Um, and that corridor is beautifully terrifying with the light that comes in and that sort of grey and blackness to it. Yeah, and, and it's commentary on us as viewers and yeah, what yeah. we enjoy yes. in movies, much like Cabin in the Woods Yeah, is. Rear Window, well, Scopophilia, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, viewing and not being viewed and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing and not knowing that there's somebody behind watching except she does know and all that sort of thing is, is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. I, yeah, they, that's the only thing that they didn't quite go far enough on um, because we never find out who the hotel clerk is working for, why yep. he's doing that, what it's all about. Yes, I really, really, really wanted that because he's at this hotel all on his own. He's clearly like a damaged kid, right? Mm. Um, and we find out why later. But even at the beginning, you can see that he's damaged. Yeah. And we learn very soon he's a heroin addict and all that kind of thing. Like there's this one kid at this completely um, middle of nowhere hotel that's got this weird conceit about being half in one state, half in the other, and then he's clearly working for these shadowy people and it never comes out. And to me, I wasn't worried about the supernatural elements so much, but I really thought there was going to be something more about the shadowy overlords. Mm. And it could be, you know, it could be the FBI with, you know, John Hams working for J. Edgar Hoover kind of stuff, but it's probably someone else. Yeah. And it's really interesting to think about yes maybe that's why maybe he didn't want us to know but it is well, frustrating that, that's the thing like it's a bit like that um film of somebody very very famous who's dead now who was doing something you mean mr mcguffin i yes. kept calling him mr mcguffin in my head yeah like it's more interesting if you don't know who that is because it's not that hard to speculate on who it might have been yeah someone who was filmed in the last 10 and the film seems to be made in the mid sort of 70s set yeah set in the mid 70s um so well nixon was president yeah nixon and was nixon president was not president for a huge amount of time no and but they also talk about um 
the glory days of the hotel being back in 1966, and Nick Offerman stays there 10 years before the events, the main events of the film. So right. I would date it at like 1972, 73 or thereabouts because they're still in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so he was he was in office from 1969 to 74. Okay. So so yeah, like and but they say this place was better back in the 60s. So is it's somewhere yeah, 72, 73 or thereabouts I would yeah. reckon. Yeah, and then you've got that news about the stabbing early on. Oh, the comedian. murder. Yeah. Yeah, I know, which never also never comes back, which yes, is kind it of does. annoying. The the one on the news. Yeah. Comes the ki- back. Kaylee's um the kid did it. Rose did it. Yeah, but it's her parents, right? I don't think so. Ah. No, I think I'm, I'm, what I would guess is that either that's where M took Rose first because they talk about them helping orphans and street kids, mm. the people who died, and then maybe they were trying to help them and she stabbed them then or it was random. Yeah. Look, I, yeah. Like I thought it was clear that she'd done it, but it, was, it really didn't come back in any – like it didn't come back how I thought it was going to. Yeah. But I think it's just to show that she's, you know, evil, stabby. Yep. <laughs> she's stabby because then she turns around and stabs um, Miles Miller as well. Mm. I don't know. That didn't, I wasn't that dissatisfied with that because I preferred the idea that she just, you know. I kind that, of, I, I, I'd forgotten what was going on. Also, and also they show her like killing her father as well or someone who looks like her father because they show the father abusing them and then you sh- they show her stabbing like a man. Yeah. So it could I would also assume be... that part is also a part of why she stabbed the people. Yeah. Like, but there's also a, a type, like they show a very definite comparison, direct comparison between the father and Billy Lee Mm-mm. because there's a scene, like they flash back, he flashed back to the scene when she was a child and then as an adult and Billy Lee's hand reaches out for her, but he's not in in frame. Yeah, yeah. And then just pulls her off, off screen after she's watched her sister die. Yeah. So that was a direct parallel between the father and Billy Lee and, you know, mm-hmm. cycles of abuse and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It just didn't bother me that much that we didn't get a lot of backstory on the stabbing, just that she did it. Yeah. Emily had to get her away because, you know, and that's yeah why she did it. She was tied up and everything because she's so dangerous. Mm. I genuinely I, – we talked about werewolves a minute ago – I genuinely thought there were werewolves in this movie. I went through a few different supernatural possibilities and then I was like, the cult definitely seems like a werewolf cult to me. So we talked about werewolves when we were reviewing Suspiria, which hasn't come out yet. Yeah. I I sort of ended up settling on it because I was like, see, it makes sense if he's turned her into a werewolf and they have to write out her like night of werewolfness Mm. in the the hotel. Yep. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, that's straight out of Buffy. It is, yes. But it like, it's also... The concept that, like, he had turned her something dangerous. Because it also yeah, yeah, seemed yeah. like a drug metaphor. Again, straight out of Buffy. But, you know, mm. like a drug metaphor that she was on. He had got her hooked on drugs or something. Yeah. And she wanted her to ride that out. And I was like, maybe it's a little drug metaphor thing. And he seemed so – and they, they talk about wolves a lot, mm. which I think is where the werewolf idea came from as well. Mm. And there's wolf sounds on the soundtrack. Yeah, well, that Deep Purple song starts with, like, wolf – Exactly, stuff. yes. There's howling and wolf sounds all the time and yeah. stuff. And I was like, clearly they're werewolves. Yeah. I also was expecting something supernatural and not it j- just them to be a metaphor for wolves. Yeah. Which I think is more what they were going for. Yeah, yeah. That, that whole, oh my God, the whole story that, um, that the little clerk tells about the man sleeping with the wolf. Yeah. That's just so 
interesting. Yes, and I was like, it's a werewolf. That was clearly a werewolf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I was just like, yeah, they're definitely werewolves. <laughs> no, there's no werewolves in this movie. A little bit disappointing, really. You know, not, not in the text anyway. Well, that's the thing is that, yeah, I was disappointed by something that was never supposed to be in the movie anyway. Mm. Yeah. I also want to talk about John Hamm. I don't always like oh, yeah. the use of John Hamm, but I thought he was really well used in this. Yes. Like, he kind of dominates that opening scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, In a way that, you know, we have to pay attention to him, but we don't necessarily like him. Mm. Yeah, but it is still a shock when he dies so early on. Like yeah, he well, does he's the, first the Janet Lee. Yeah, but he he's still really fantastic. Like... I, the way he is, yeah, that in that opening scene where he's such a dick, but he's also like trying to do this sale, pretend that he's actually a salesman. Well, I think he, I think the being a dick is part of his salesman character. Yeah, it's part of the shtick, yeah. right? And he's, um, yeah, he's so good. Because then it's it switches to he's being really really sweet to his daughter. Mm. That's the next scene that we see with him in it. Like he's reading a story. No, he's reading doing a prayer, a prayer doing a prayer her. with his daughter. Yeah. And then, you know, immediately foreshadows his own death. Yeah. I should die before I wake. Yeah. We've cut that out. Morbid. Where did you learn that word? Yeah. I liked that. Yeah. And, and at the same time, like pulling all the bugs out of the phone out of the room. Yes. Yeah. That was cool. And li- lining them all up. Yep. And then, really good, satisfying shot. I liked that. Um, and then figuring out the, the two-way mirror. And I don't think he ever goes back to his, his honeymoon suite after that. Does he? No, I don't think he does. Because at that point, he then leaves, goes, and he, yeah. then he goes and finds... um the other side of the mirrors and then kind of you know goes to stop people from getting away he brings his uh, brings his boss j edgar hoover yeah yeah um that i like also the way they draw attention to little things like signing the ledger and the mm. money like the quarters at the beginning for the coffee and all that mm. sort of stuff to establish power play and yeah yeah um the whole thing is a meditation on you know good versus bad and whether it matters to choose a side and all of mm. that sort of stuff and Yep. What is good and bad? Uh, well, J. Edgar um, Hoover died in 1972, so if we want to date it, we can date it very specifically to sometime between 1969 and 1972. Yeah, movie. I would probably guess like yeah, 71 ish. Yeah, because it's it looks like it's in the 60s the way they dress. Mm. Also, the fact that Cynthia Erivo's character's got this background singing with girl groups and stuff like that. Yeah, and Motown. Yeah, I think it's like a transition period. Mm. Yes, for the country, which is also you know now so. Mm. Should play well to current audiences, and a lot of stuff with mirrors and reflections and stuff. Oh yeah, the, all the the mirror use of mirrors is fantastic. Like yeah. the set for the hotel lobby, which like with you know with the big line, the state line down the middle, and mm. you've got the Vegas um, gambling tables on one side. You've got those those fire things that you know are going to come back later on. The yeah. chandelier, the like there's mirrors and glass everywhere as well. Yeah. The way that that's used at various points. But also I noticed um, when Jeff Bridges is giving his first speech about how he's got Alzheimer's, Mm. there's like, it's not actually fire behind him, but it looks like fire behind him. Mm. And it's a, um, what's the word? I used it just like five minutes ago and I can't remember it now. Foreshadowing? Yes, it's foreshadowing for later when he absolves the kid and there's fire everywhere. Fire everywhere. Um, Yeah. And that whole thing, like it's, um, it's set in Lake Tahoe. So it's meant to be like, but it's on the outskirts, so it's like a, a ski town. Yeah. So the way it's sort of – it is very, like, 70s ski chalet, lots of slate and stone and, and brown tones. Yeah. I, I also liked the ominous beginning where where Flynn and Darlene talk about the weather mm. and she's like, it's sunny here, and he's like, it looks like it's going to rain over here. Mm. You know, like that 
kind of set up between the worlds that they're coming from and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think the whole California-Nevada divide is really interesting because, like, obviously then the big difference is Nevada is supposed to be, you know, the sinful place where, you know, people gamble. But nowadays California is the place where pot is legal and Nevada <laughs> doesn't have that. It's like it's like this different um, different sort of mores. Like California is, you know, laid back and hippie and um, Nevada is about making money off gambling and, and building an yeah. oasis in the desert. It's this kind of idea of, like, the trashy Nevada side versus yeah. the like sunny the hippie California the, side. The, the California side is like just a veneer almost. Yeah, yep. In this, there isn't really a line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like that. Th- those themes of watching and being watched. You know, especially the scene mm. which we talk, which I talked about before, where Darlene sings to Dakota Johnson behind the mirror, mm. but she like can only see herself. And, but assumes there's somebody behind the mirror and like, or they think there might be, which is why he's hiding. Um, mm. And she goes through the whole song and, you know, the clapping and oh, he's yeah. banging and, and Dakota's just watching her sing and she thinks it's to herself and all that stuff. Mm. And earlier she had sung to herself. And she, she, is that the point where she takes off her wig as well? The beginning yes. of that scene? Yeah. Uh, and and she's act- just sitting and then mm. takes off her wig and then starts singing. Yeah. And a wig remove is always a big thing. Yeah. And also, Cynthia Erivo is famous for her kind of look of it's having the hair. very short hair and it's usually dyed blonde. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. I just, it also recalled there's a couple of famous wig removal scenes. The ones I can think of are in television one from Melrose Place and one from How to Get Away with Murder. Mm. There's a couple of real famous wig removal scenes. Like, and it's not just those two things, but th- they're referencing like a longer history of removing a wig and, you know, taking the facade off. Yes. So that was um, an important scene too. That's interesting because she's kind of taking off the facade to put on a facade. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it looks at the beginning like it's a very vulnerable moment for her, but then it turns out that, which is often the case with the character, mm. that what seems to be a vulnerable moment for her is going to turn out to be a moment of her actually like taking control. Yeah, when she whacks Jeff Bridges in the bar. Oh, yeah, and the woman behind us screamed. <laughs> That was good. It was That's really good. It's effective if it's making people scream. I know, but it was really funny. Yeah. And then the woman next to her was like, you screaming made me jump. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny. Well, that was, a, that was kind of a shock. That, and then later on, her shoes, the high heels, stay there for the rest of the film. And in fact, at the end, you can see she's in a pair of flats. Mm. It's, it's, she very much removes all the trappings of, like, the, of femininity um, yeah. as, she, as she progresses through uh, the thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and becomes more and more done with everybody. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah, she's clearly the uh, moral centre of the film. And I didn't Mm. think she was going to die at any point, but I definitely thought that the kid was going to die long before he did because he just – right up until the end, he almost seems extraneous. Yeah, I really like what they did with him at the end, though, because he sort of – that redeemed everything that came before by giving him an actual backstory. Yeah. And and the lovely way that that, um, Cynthia Rivo convinces Jeff Bridges to just absolve him even though he's not really a priest. Yeah, and that's why it's like, yeah, it's that good versus evil and Mm. what really matters and all that sort of stuff. Really interesting ideas. I'm not – I think really Billy Lee is the one who tells us what the perspective of the movie is, which is that, like, you pick a side that's good or bad, but it doesn't necessarily reflect who you actually are. Mm. There's just people trying to get us all to fight it out while they're over there taking your money, Mm -hmm. which is kind of ultimately the point of the movie really, isn't it? Like, you know, the kids picked religion as his good thing, Mm. but like Flynn's not actually 
a priest, the real religion of it doesn't come into the finale. No. It's just about what people choose to do. Yeah. Which is a very Firefly sort of idea, really. Mm, I, don't <laughs> I know. mean, not that that was originally in Firefly, but that was the point of the last episode of Firefly. Mm. Was existentialism, which is, seems to be what this movie is partly about, existentialism. Yeah. Although only the religious people survive. Yes. Because um, Cynthia Erivo prays to God a couple of times. Yeah, that's right. And... She talks about how she's singing in choir. Yeah. But then, you know... Jeff Bridges isn't punished for pretending to be a priest. No. Um, I also noticed that his re- the character name, um, Flynn's real name was Donald O'Kelly. Mm, yeah. Which um, they shortened to Doc. Mm-hmm. They all called him Doc. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's the initials. That's so dumb. Yeah, D-O-K. But also kind of entertaining. Uh-huh. But um, it also made me think of um, um, Singing in the Rain. Yeah, yes. Donald O'Connor. Yes, yeah. I mean, he, he had the the t- two of the most Irish names that ever Irished uh, in um, Donald O'Kelly. And then his the p- priest name was um, Daniel Flynn. Daniel Flynn, that's it. I couldn't remember the first name. I was like, it doesn't, <laughs> it's Flynn. But yeah. Also, the whole aesthetic of this movie is so cool. I love mm. the kind of 70s aesthetic that's around at the moment. It's, it's quite popular with Black Klansmen in this. But mm. also there's that moment. When Cynthia Erivo comes out of the hotel and it's pouring and it just says El Royale all in red above her head. Mm. And I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> that looks so cool. Yeah. I love it. It's just really pretty. And oh, neat. And this whole, the, it's so atmospheric because mm. other than that initial meeting in the car park, the rest of the movie is like dark and rainy and, and you just watch it get, as, um, as John Hamm goes out, you watch it get darker and darker and the and rainier and rainier. Yeah, except for some of the flashbacks. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's um, that obviously creates amazing atmosphere. Yes, it does, and it's you know neon lights against rain is one of my favorite aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So they use that a lot in this movie, and it looks cool. But um, yeah, the framing and stuff is also really interesting. Mm. Um, he really pays attention to a lot of that stuff in this. There's also a shot of John Hamm where, like, John Hamm himself is a tiny portion of the frame, but his reflection in the mirror is really big. Yeah. And stuff like that that's, you know, gives you some sense of what's going on with him, what's about to happen, that mm-hmm. he thinks he's being watched. watched but, he, I mean, he thinks he was the watcher, but he's actually being watched yeah. and all that stuff. Everybody kept getting glass in their head. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I also wrote down the uh, the phrase, let's have ourselves an allegory. <laughs> When uh, Billy Lee was starting the fight, I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah. Again, the writing is very specific mm. and it there's a lot of things, oh, shit happens, get the whiskey and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think could, this could be quite quotable to start with. Extremely quotable. Um, but also very specifically from that Joss Whedon kind of, you know, Drew Goddard lineage. school of writing. Yes. yes. The school of writing that he picked up there. Yeah. At one point I did write, guys, there's a fire. Because they're sitting there for ages resolving the kid. And I'm like, there's a fire right behind you. I know. That was really bothered me too. I'm like, the whole place is on fire. It could collapse at any minute. Get out of there. It's like, I know we're having ourselves an allegory here, but we need to move. We need to like move people. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about the ending that just didn't sit right somehow. I thought that maybe somebody creepy would be watching her or something like that. Well, that's, yeah, I thought there'd be more to it. Like someone has discovered them. Obviously, they removed all trace of themselves from the hotel as they left. So, but like... Yeah, I feel like somebody somewhere has realized they were there. But all the rooms were bugged and everything. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like somebody must have realized. I'm trying to figure out if there's anything else that I wanted to talk about. I don't think there is. Oh, yeah, my Shea Wiggum double. 
I wrote that down too because I watched oh, two Shea right. Wigger movies this weekend. I watched First Man, which I don't think we're going to cover. I don't think you'd like it, which had Shea Wiggum in it. And then this one, he was the doctor at the at the prison that Flynn went to. Yeah. I saw him and I was like, oh, it's that guy. He always plays people from the 1960s. Well, see, I feel me, like I've seen him play a Kennedy. I'm not even joking. To me, he kind of looks like a, like Gary Sinise. Yeah, a little but bit. like now. Mm. Um, and Gary Sinise often also played period roles. There's just something about him that looks like it belongs in a different time. Yeah. I just saw that Drew Goddard is an EP on the um, Good Place. How is he? He's just in everything good. Yeah. Well, Which no, is... he also wrote The Defenders, so. Well. But, but um, yeah. a lot of things that I particularly, I mean, Daredevil, Lost. Buffy, <laughs> and Cabin in the Woods is like a, you know, triple threat of stuff Katie loves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I did like Lost as well, so. Mm. And I think his, I just really like his writing mm. and that he kind of gets into big ideas with accessible writing. Yeah, I mean, The Martian's an excellent movie. Um, which is, is. What his, his screenplay. Yeah, but of course it was adapted from a book, so I don't know how much. Mm. But like, but it seems like though. Did you talking about lines with the Whedon-y, um, uh, Yeah, yeah. I'm going to science Flavor. the shit out of this. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, those sorts of things are very much in his style, I think. Mm. Which is a style of writing I particularly enjoy, and I really, really enjoyed Bad Times at the ORL a lot. Yeah, me too. Shall we give it ratings? Yes, I'm going to give it four and a half stars. I'm going to give it four stars. I very much enjoyed it, but I'm not going coping well with being scared at the moment. That's why I wanted to warn people at the beginning. It's scary, which is bad because it's October. So it's just horror movies after horror movies at the it moment. Anyway. I really enjoyed, I don't know, for me it wasn't that scary to start with. Once I knew what they were doing, once I was like, oh, this is going to be a horror movie, then it was fine. But yeah. it was like, oh, I forgot that this was going to be a horror movie before yeah. I started watching it. I think almost it's almost more of like a thrillery yeah, movie to me. I think that's what people would say. And I also wonder if some of the reason that it seems like there's some, going to be super, something supernatural is because he's worked on so many things that have a supernatural element to them. Yes. That that's the kind of style that he normally works in. So you yeah, expect it. Yeah, because it is – It, I mean, I wasn't the only one who thought that perhaps something supernatural would happen. No. Even without expectations of yes. something supernatural happening. So I don't know whether that – yeah, and, and well, it, the whole film feels like there's something else going on. Yes. And you and my husband both thought it was something supernatural. I was more in the, like, oh, some kind of vast government conspiracy camp. But yeah. there definitely feels like there's something more to it yeah. that we just don't ever quite get to. Yeah. And that's also very much in the 70s sort of vibe as well. True. That they've got all that kind of end of the Cold War stuff. Well, not end, but, like, Cold War stuff plus, you know, Vietnam and yeah, well, and Watergate and yeah. lots of shady government dealings and sort stuff. Of loss of innocence kind of yeah. Yeah, stuff that goes with the 70s. Okay, well, I guess I'll wrap up. Thank you very much for listening to the Silver Screen Queens podcast. If you want to find show notes or old episodes, they're on our website, silverscreenqueens.com. And if you want to find us on social media, we're at screen underscore queens on Twitter, facebook.com forward slash silverscreenqueens and tumblr.silverscreenqueens.com on Tumblr. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.